Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6 and verse 1, as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 is our passage today, and that passage can be found on page 861 if you are using a church Bible. Page 861. Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. Before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and as we come before your word, we pray, God, that you would make your word alive to us, that by the Holy Spirit you would convict us of who you are and your love for us, that you would grow us spiritually, God, that for some of us you would bring us to know you for the first time. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Up to this point in the narrative, Luke has presented Jesus to us as a very polarizing figure. Some people are drawn to him and will leave everything to follow him. Friends, family, career, everything. And others are skeptical of him and bring their accusations against him in an attempt to discredit him. And ironically, it is those who are supposed to be furthest off from God who appear to be getting it. The Galilean fishermen, the sick, the poor, the marginalized, the filthy leper on the outskirts of society, the most blatant sinner, even the worst kind, like the tax collector. It's not the righteous, but the unwell who seem to appreciate Jesus for who he really is. And those who are the super spiritual ones and the mega religious and trained in the word of God, they're the ones who actually hate Jesus the most. The conservative Pharisee and the scribe, the ones who say long prayers and do their fasting for everyone to see, the most publicly holy people, they can't stand Jesus because Jesus is a threat to their very own self-righteous lifestyle. The tax collector can come to Jesus broken in sin with nothing to offer and find in him forgiveness and the invitation to leave his life and follow him. The Pharisee in self-confidence and self-righteousness never will. And so there's been this series of conflicts and confrontations between the religious leadership of the nation and the Son of God himself. Jesus is not buying into the spiritual system that they have set up to stroke their own ego and feed their own vanity in check-marking religion of head-swelling self-promotion. And that's because Jesus is not about that kind of religion at all. He is about the kind of love that exists between a groom and a bride, the relational love between the Son of God and His people. The Messiah has come to love His people with the highest kind of love there is bestowed upon the ones who know they deserve it least. God's love is utterly unearned, and this is why there has been so much conflict, because the predominant religion of the first century has no category for this kind of love. And it is in our text this morning and in our text next Sunday that we come to more conflict surrounding the observance of the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath holy. Now, what is a Sabbath? When God created the world, he spoke everything into existence. 
And for six straight days, he created the universe and the stars, the earth, the creatures in it, the plants, the mountains, the valleys. He created humanity. And it was on the seventh day that God rested, which formed a pattern, six days of work and a day of rest. Not because God was tired and not because the Almighty needed to catch his breath. But this pattern was to become the basis for God's own people. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, this is within the Ten Commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we have a pattern, one full day of dedicated rest among seven, holy and separate from all the other days of the week. Not because God was tired, not because the Almighty needed to catch his breath, but because we so often get tired and we need to catch ours. The Sabbath was for the good of God's people to take a day off to worship and praise and give thanks with the people of God, to relax and enjoy your family and to do the things that refresh you. The Sabbath day was designed to be a day of rejuvenation by the cessation of working activities. Now, the book of Exodus is written just after Israel had been freed from four centuries of forced slavery. And so imagine that the God who freed you is now commanding you that one-seventh of your year is for rest and enjoyment and for worship, and you do that unto me. Your rejuvenation is actually a form of worship. I mean, this command would have been music to their ears, sweet like honey, the precepts of God. And this observance of the Sabbath would also set them apart from the other nations surrounding them. The Sabbath spoke loudly to the community of God's people and to the watching eyes of the world that even though we could harvest more on this day and make a little bit more money and earn more crop, we stop because God asked us to stop. And we do so for worship and recalibration. We do so knowing that this is for our own good. And therefore, we also trust God that even if we give up a seventh of our year, we trust that, you know what, God is going to provide for his people regardless. And the Sabbath was also proclaimed to the community and to the watching world that we declare our allegiance to the God who has rescued us, that we stop our lives, so to speak, because we recognize that God is more important than anything and that he is our priority and that we are his people. And so the Sabbath day is, is a day of supreme importance for rejuvenation, a break from the weekly rhythm of life patterned after God's work in creation to recalibrate ourselves to himself and forge a bond between our creator and our God with his people. The Sabbath is designed by God from the beginning of creation to be a blessing to us and a witness to the world around us, and therefore Sabbath-keeping became a symbol for godliness and even an emblem of the national identity of Israel. It was really the best day of the week. Everyone looked forward to it, a day of worship, rest, and joy, which really functioned like a pointer to the ultimate worship and the final rest and the culmination of our joy in the salvation that God would provide to his people in his Christ. It was always to be a blessing to the people of God. 
Now, brothers and sisters, God's commands, they're always for our own good. They really, truly are. We get into trouble when we think that they aren't. And then when we try and do what we think will be better for us. We don't always know what is good for us like God knows what is good for us. Israel, throughout history, they didn't do a good job of keeping the Sabbath. They didn't do it. They, they didn't set aside the proper time to worship their God and rest their own selves and recalibrate their own hearts. Some were greedy and they wanted to work more and more and trust God less. Some just did not want to worship. And the laying aside of the Sabbath day became more and more normal, which was a laying aside really of God himself. And therefore, in the Old Testament, God disciplined Israel mightily because of their failure to keep the Sabbath day holy, which is why by the time of the first century, which is the setting of our passage, many of the Pharisees and the religious leadership of the nation, they started to really police the Sabbath with the initial good intention that we never, ever want to break this again. And so let's come up with a list of rules to make sure that we never do. Rules that went way further than the Word of God, and these rules were down to the minutiae. How many steps can you take before it's considered working? How much weight can you carry before it was considered labor? Nothing heavier than a fig or a half a fig carried two times. You throw an object in the air and catch it with the other hand, that's work. But if you catch it with the same hand, that's not work. You, can, you can't spit on the ground. If your saliva mixes with the dirt, that technically makes mud, which is technically mortar, which is technically working. The Pharisees had lost the forest for the trees, and the stress of making sure the Sabbath was not violated became a stressful work in and of itself. And so what God had designed for his people's benefit and for their rest and rejuvenation, for the building up of their relationship with himself, the Sabbath became a burden where the focus wasn't even on God himself, but upon regulations that the most anticipated day of rest became ironically a dreaded day of labor. This is what the religious Pharisee will generally do, not just in the first century, but in every century. They have the special ability to turn a blessing into a burden and to take that which frees us and transform that into a bondage, and Jesus is not about that. And so we come to our text this morning in verse 1, and we read this. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Here we have the Pharisees using the Sabbath to attack Jesus and his followers. The day of worship and rest designed by God for our own good is here being used as a weapon in the hand of the Pharisees to attack their fellow man and accuse the Son of God. And we have really in the flow of Luke's narrative, Jesus' lifestyle. Jesus is constantly preaching and teaching. He is healing the sick. He is freeing the demon oppressed from their bondage. We have scenes of the crowds pressing in on him to the point where he has to go and preach from a boat. There have been all-night prayer sessions and traveling from this synagogue to the next synagogue so that he could proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus has done in the first few chapters of Luke what many of us will not accomplish in our entire lifetimes. And here Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and they pick some heads of grain, rub it into their hands to take apart the husk and eat the kernel within to get some energy. It has been a long week, pretty much every week. And the law of God, again for people's goods, 
has a provision to do exactly just this. Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25 says, if you're in your neighbor's vineyard and you're hungry, you're allowed to eat some grapes. If you're in your neighbor's field and you're hungry, you can eat some grain. Remember, there's no 7-Elevens. There's no Taco Bells. And you walk, not drive for miles at a time. And so there's no question of conscience when you eat in transit through someone else's field. You're not filling your backpack up with someone else's stuff. This is just eating as you go so you don't go faint along the way. God cares about his people. But the craziest thing, I think, in these opening verses is that the Pharisees are hiding in the grain fields. And they jump out of nowhere. We got you. Because at this point, the religious leadership of the nation is stalking Jesus, hounding his every move. They are on stakeout after stakeout. They can't leave him alone, unwatched and unchallenged. They were obsessed with trying to catch Jesus in some kind of wrong. And for them, the action of plucking grain, well, that's a form of reaping. And the rubbing of your hands together, that's a form of threshing. You're dropping the husk. That is technically winnowing, and therefore this is full-blown work, and therefore you guys are violating the Sabbath. We got you. And so we see it again that the religion of the Pharisees is not about the good of humanity. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. There is an exaggerated and false spiritual zeal here about the minutia while missing the point of the Sabbath entirely. Their man-made rules become a means to police people and to exalt themselves because they love to tell other people what to do. We get it perfectly unlike everyone else. I love to tell you how to live, what you can and cannot do. These are legalists who do not love their neighbors nor love the God who commanded these things for our own good. And the human need and human hunger and human thriving, it's not even on their radar. And sadly, it is that the ones who declare to bear the name of God loudest can sometimes be the most harmful kinds of people. Verse 3, look at how Jesus answers them. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Here we find Jesus defending his disciples. And I think it's a beautiful scene when the Son of God comes to defend his followers from false accusation. He justifies us, brothers and sisters. Jesus stands in front of us. He comes to our rescue. He answers for us. He is our protector. Jesus is our advocate. And look at the way that Jesus does so. He doesn't argue about pharisaical law or their expectations or their definitions. Jesus doesn't engage with them on their own made-up rules. But he directs their eyes to the Word of God. The best defense for a believing life is God's Word. The highest justification for what we do within our short time upon this earth is the Scripture itself. And there's a hint of irony, more, more than a hint really, have you not read? Because the experts of the Bible and the spiritual gurus of the nation don't seem to understand the very area of their supposed expertise. In all the demanding detail that you've interpreted and poured yourselves over, did you happen to skip this part of the Bible and miss the point of it all? 
And so Jesus gives to them 1 Samuel chapter 21, a passage they're very familiar with, where King David, Goliath slayer, worshipful psalmist, the man after God's own heart, the one who was given an eternal promise and covenant while he has been anointed as king, the former King Saul did not recognize it, and it became Saul's mission to murder David and the special forces of Israel. It's tasked with hunting David and his followers down, and it gets so bad that they're unarmed. They're hungry because they had to flee with such haste. They got nothing with them, and they come to an old town, Nob, just outside of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle had been located, and David comes into that courtyard desperately hungry. I got no other options. And the only food there is a bread reserved for the priests. Twelve loaves, Exodus 40, Leviticus 24. This is symbolic holy bread. This is an emblem. And the priests, seeing the situation at hand, and looking at the Lord's anointed one in front of him, he makes the executive decision to offer them the holy bread, and they all ate it, and they were given the sustenance they needed to continue on their way. And nowhere does God condemn this priest, nor does he criminalize David or his lowly band of followers. Now, for the Pharisee hearing this passage, they're stuck, because David definitely did not follow the rules to the T. But would these Pharisees criminalize King David? Israel's most revered king, the anointed one of God, the son of whom God promised would be the future Messiah. Would we want him arrested for this? Well, that's going to make us more like King Saul and be on the wrong side of history. But King David did violate the ceremonial law in time of desperate need. Technically, it is illegal. But if we zoom out a bit, would we have asked the Lord's anointed to starve when he was the one who needed that bread the most? Would we have condemned David? Are we going to condemn the one that God himself did not condemn? Are we going to point our long fingers at the Lord's anointed one, or are we going to say, because of who David is and the pressing and very unique situation at hand, that eating ceremonial bread was actually the right thing to do? You see how they're stuck? In our text, the Pharisees they give no response from their lips, but Jesus continues to press on into the main point of our passage, verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The main issue that the Pharisees have is that they are not recognizing who it is that is standing before them. Jesus is the ultimate Lord's anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the Christ himself. And they are not recognizing the situation at hand. The sick are being healed. The demon is cast out. Liberty is being proclaimed to the captive. The kingdom of God is declared. They refuse to recognize who Jesus is, and they are in denial about the situation at hand in the coming of the long-awaited Christ. When Jesus mentions the name David, then they realize when it comes to David and him being hunted and in need, it is because of who David had been in God's plan of redemption. The anointed one, Goliath slayer, man after God's own heart, the covenant eternal is given to him. Nitpicking becomes utterly inappropriate, even though technically David did not obey the ceremonial law. But here even more so. 
We have the son of David, the anointed one, the son of man, Daniel 7, 14. That's a messianic title. The demon slayer, the one greater than David, and he didn't break any law at all. Just their man-made rules. How much more so do these Pharisees need to take a step back and realize who it is that is standing before them and what it is that he has come to do? When Jesus declares the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he is telling them his very own identity as a Messiah, as a promise, and anointed one. He's declaring to them his lordship. I'm the creator of the Sabbath and the determiner of how the Sabbath should be used. He's declaring his superiority, that being lord of the Sabbath makes me actually greater than the Sabbath. And that this Sabbath is ultimately about Jesus Christ as it has always been. And Jesus is now here confronting his accusers with who he is, that if you cannot point a finger at David, you can never point the finger at me. Now, up to this point in the narrative, Jesus has already declared his ability to forgive sins in a way that only God can, chapter 5, verse 24. He's already declared that he's a great physician for those who are sick, chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus has already told everyone, I am the bridegroom, which was a name reserved only for God in the Old Testament. I am the bridegroom who is in love with my people, chapter 5, verse 34. And here it is. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. If the identity of David changes the way that you think, shouldn't the identity of the Son of Man, the Anointed One, and God himself standing before you even now change the way that you think? And that same Jesus, he could take his identity and his power and lord it all over us. I mean, that's what a Pharisee would do. The higher I get and the holier I get it, look how great I am, look at me now. And yet it is that we find this greater David, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, declaring, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need rest, brothers and sisters. We need rejuvenation. And so many times we look for it anywhere and everywhere but Jesus Christ himself. You know, there's a reason why the leper, the sick, the tax collector can come to Jesus so freely because they know, they know, I need help. I'm incapable. I'm weak. I'm sinful. I am in need, and there is but one person who I go to when I am in this kind of need. And the reason why Jesus can offer this kind of rest is because he chooses to take our weakness upon himself. He bears our iniquity as his very own, that the one who knows not sin actually becomes, in a sense, sin upon that cross so that we instead might become the righteousness of God in him his life for ours, his death in our place, his resurrection from the grave, proof positive that his sacrifice has been accepted, and all of this to show how much it is that he loves us, brothers and sisters, and so that we might be with him and that we might come to know the rest he has designed from the very beginning of all of creation. The sick 
the marginalized, the tax collector, the man with paralysis, the sinner, the ones who cannot deny their own predicament, they can really appreciate Jesus for who he is and what he has come to do. The Pharisee, the self-righteous, the confident, that look at what I can offer to you, God, they never really can. Jesus is very polarizing, and when we come face-to-face -face with him, we must make a choice about who he is and what he has come to do. Every single one of us has to. And there's a day coming, which every Sabbath day of worship, rest, and joy points to. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of an ultimate worship, a final rest, and the culmination of our joy in this salvation that God has provided to his people in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is why, even though the old law and the old covenant has passed, the early Christians took the same Sabbath principle and made the first day of the week rather than the last day the Lord's day. For it was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And upon this day, the early church ceased from work, even though they might have got paid more for doing so. They rested and trusted in God to provide. We worship and we give thanks and we meet with the people of God to praise the one who has so saved us. And we together declare to the watching world around us that Jesus Christ is our priority. Now, as we close, you know, we see that the Pharisees really got the Sabbath wrong. They missed the entire point of it. They went overboard policing it and destroyed the very intent of the Sabbath. But the solution to that is not for the Pharisee to just relax a little bit as if it was a personality issue and be a little bit more chill on all the regulations. What they really needed to do was recognize the Lord of the Sabbath. And I think that for a lot of modern-day Christians, there is a belief that the solution to Pharisaicalism is antinomianism. we got no rules, no law. That if they were nitpicky, then we're better because we don't even observe the Sabbath at all in principle. We're free. We don't even worship. We don't even go to church because we aren't Pharisees. Sundays are about me, 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 me. Brothers and sisters, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And there's more than one way to violate the Sabbath principle. This is not God's design. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Lord's day. And we are just as wrong as the Pharisees if we pursue our own selfish, self-centered agendas like they did just because they're different doesn't mean it's different. Whether we do it in the name of legalism or in the name of freedom from the law, we can equally not recognize the Lord of the Sabbath. J.C. Ryle, he says this, our Sundays and how we use them is one of the most sure signs of our spiritual condition. Our Sundays and how we use them is one of the most sure signs of our spiritual condition. When we begin to lay aside the Lord's day principle, we are laying aside the Lord himself. Make no mistake. And the very day that God has designed from creation for our good and our rest and our rejuvenation and our communion with him and our worship of him and our protection from burnout, our protection from the idolatry of work and making more cash or kids' sports or idolizing football, golf, yada, yada, when we fill the Lord's Day with everything and anything but him, when we lay that aside, make no mistake, we are laying aside the Lord of the Sabbath as well. 
Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your Lord's day? Or is it something else? Have you taken a gift of God designed from creation itself and made it into a day where someone else or something else is really functioning as what you worship? Have you neglected the Lord's day and thus neglected him and his people this past year and a half? Well, today is a new day. It's time to come back. It's time to be rejuvenated. It's time to worship and praise and receive the rest that your soul needs. We must trust God, brothers and sisters. We must trust the one who loves us so dearly that he knows what is best for us, that making him the very center of our own lives is for our highest good. And a day is coming, our ultimate Sabbath, where we will be with the Lord of the Sabbath. And so therefore we honor him and love him. We study him, we sing to him, and we praise him because he is the Lord of this day. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And by the Holy Spirit, would you apply these words to our lives? Protect us from the error of the Pharisees. Protect us from the mistake of the antinomian. I pray, God, that just purely and cleanly you would give us eyes to see your son for who he really is, and that by the Spirit you would cause our hearts to love him for who he is, that we might live unto him with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.